0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 7 in our Second Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Cost and Commitment of This Day of Salvation, where we'll discuss Second Corinthians chapter 6, Verses 1 through 18. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today?
1: Well, one of the most important statements Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 6, which many pastors and evangelists use, and we'll see it right away, is today is the day of salvation, and understanding the concept of an opportunity. Uh, In the time of God's favor, uh, he is ready to hear us. um, Or as it says in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. There's a a time similar to Noah's Ark when the Ark door is open and you can get on the Ark. But when that Ark door gets closed, you're on the outside and that's it. Mm. And so there's a sense of urgency, a sense of making the most of the time. Now, beyond that, the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to make a personal appeal to the Corinthians. First of all, to see him properly in the midst of all of his sufferings that they understand that he is a faithful messenger of the true gospel. But then beyond that, to see their lives in this world properly, to live holy lives, to not be yoked together with unbelievers, to come out and be separate from the corrupting influences of their Corinthian pagan society, and to live godly, upright, holy lives for the glory of God.
0: Well, let me go ahead and read chapter 6 of Second Corinthians as we begin our time together. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, Hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor. Through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Andy, how do these first two verses connect with the previous chapter? And how does the urgency here help to complete Paul's appeal that he was making in chapter 5 that we looked at last time?
1: Yeah, chapter 5, as we saw, is one of the greatest uh, chapters on personal evangelism, motives of personal evangelism, why Paul did what he did, and it culminates in a beautiful climax where we are God's ambassadors as though God himself were making his appeal through us, pleading with people, be reconciled to God. And then that great statement in verse 21, God made him Christ who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, A, a very quick elegant summary of the gospel itself. And then as he transitions now into a new chapter, um, realize that there were no chapter or verse divisions when mm-hmm. Paul wrote the epistle, he's just gonna continue. And so 6.1, it says, working together with him or as God's fellow worker. So he's just continuing that same idea. God is in us and he's making an appeal to all that are hearing me. That's what he's saying. So God, as working with us or as a fellow worker with us, we are appealing to you. And he says, uh, do not receive God's grace in vain. Very provocative theologically in, in something that we need to understand. But that's how it links to the previous chapter.
0: What does Paul mean by that very statement, don't receive the grace of God in vain? And how does this connect to the doctrine of effectual calling?
1: Okay, so there are many people who hear the gospel and they don't repent and believe. And this is the parable of the seed in the soil. So you think right away of the seed sown on, on the path, and as soon as it's sown, Uh, The birds come and uh, eat it up, Mm -hmm. you know, and and so Satan comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts, Jesus said. I would think that would be a plain example of receiving God's grace in vain. It was God's grace that they even heard the gospel at all. Many people live their whole lives and die never having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mm. and they are condemned for their sins not because they didn't believe in Christ, but because of their sins against, against the God of nature, against the God who put his, their, his conscience in their, their hearts and they violated that conscience. So they are without excuse, Paul says in Romans 1.20, but they never heard the gospel. Therefore, people who do hear the gospel are graced by God, they're given God's grace, but they heard that grace of God in vain. Same thing also, I think, with the stony ground here and the uh, seeds sown among the, the thorns those, all of them, receive God's grace in vain. Mm. How does it relate to effectual calling? Well, it is impossible for the elect ultimately to hear God's word or receive God's grace in vain. It will be effective. And so it's the Holy Spirit that makes God's grace effective. It's another level of God's grace. That God was gracious to those who hear uh, the gospel and never believe, but he's even more gracious to the elect who he works regeneration in their hearts. So he's urging them, don't act like unbelievers with the word shows clear signs of repentance and a holy life.
0: What is God saying to sinners in verse 2, and how should the urgency of this passage also be pressed on people already converted for both evangelism and personal holiness?
1: Yeah, he says, In the time of my favor, I, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. And he says, I tell you, now is that time. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So as I mentioned during the intro of this podcast, there is an open opportunity now, a season of amnesty, but that will not go on forever. There is a certain limit, a time limit to that uh, that opportunity, that time of God's favor. I think it very much links uh, to that's. He's quoting Isaiah 49 here, but it also... Uh, links to Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Mm. That implies a time when he will no longer be found. And so the idea here is, as the author of Hebrews says, uh, if you, uh, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't Mm. harden your heart. So when you hear the gospel, you should immediately repent. You should not presume on another hearing or another opportunity. You should not put it off to a future time. Because it could be that was the day, that was the opportunity. You might actually live for many years beyond that. Mm. I think about Felix who was very convicted and and made afraid by hearing Paul talk about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. Mm. And he got so afraid he stopped Paul and he said, that's enough for now. I'll send for you again at a more suitable time. But he never repented two more years passed, and then the whole era passed in his life. He went on to his next assignment, Mm. and that was it. For all we knew, that was his day of salvation. That was his time, and he did not make the most of it. So there's a sense of urgency. I think fundamentally the idea here is do not presume on a future day. Today, if you hear God appealing to you, repent and follow him. That's something true also for Christians. Even though we've already come to faith in Christ, he may be calling on you to repent from a specific sin pattern. Mm. Don't put it off repent today
0: and then also the urgency of that gospel message as well knowing that today may be the day of salvation for someone and mm-hmm. seeing that as an opportunity a golden opportunity to be faithful with that message God's entrusted to us yeah, as we talked about last I agree
1: time. I just think it's, it's, it's presumption mm. it is arrogance to think that you will have another day. As James tells us, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. You might not even be alive. So the idea is it's urgent. And I've heard evangelists use this. I've used it myself. Say, look, you're here today. You've heard the gospel today. Repent today. Mm.
0: Now, in verses 3 through 13, Paul turns to his own example of suffering and, and this picture of suffering in the ministry Uh, But in verse 3, what kinds of obstacles could an evangelist or missionary or pastor put in someone's path to make them stumble over the gospel message? And why is it so vital for ministers of the gospel to live out godliness before the eyes of the people they're ministering to?
1: Well, it seems from verse 3, Paul's saying we don't do offensive things, we don't do sinful things that would discredit the message. So all along in 2 Corinthians, we're going to see this again and again, Paul's very aware that there's a weaving together – of the message, which he didn't craft, he's just a messenger, was crafted by God, Galatians. He said, I didn't make this gospel up. It was revealed to me from heaven. I'm just a faithful messenger of it. But there's a, a weaving together of the message and the messenger. And so he understands that people just see the messenger. And if the messenger is doing things that are offensive, that are immoral, if he's leading a wicked life in some way, sexually immoral, or if he's actually greedy for money, or if he's doing some wicked thing that discredits the message, even if he is in fact preaching the pure gospel, that is a system that will not work. People do see the lifestyle of the messenger. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, I don't do that. I don't put any stumbling block that would discredit my ministry and my message. We have sought to be holy before you. We're not perfect, but we haven't done anything that should cause you to stumble. And then he goes on from there to list his credentials, generally of suffering. Mm
0: -hmm. And Paul uses various terms, all in the plural, to discuss these trials. He talks about afflictions, hardships, Mm -hmm. calamities. What does this teach us about his life, and how does endurance in the face of stiff opposition actually validate the message of the gospel?
1: Right, so um, this is an amazing Uh, book, really. And uh, this chapter is perhaps not as well-known as Paul's resume of suffering that he'll give us in chapter 11, where he goes through, you know, five times I was beaten with the lashes, 40 lashes minus one, Mm -hmm. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods, that's eight beatings, shipwrecked, all that. He's got this long list of sufferings. Well, this is basically the same thing here in different words. No one that I'm aware of in church history suffered as much for the gospel as the apostle Paul. No one, there's no one who even comes close. And if we look at this listing, it is very convicting for all pastors and all missionaries and really all Christians of what Paul was willing to go through for the gospel. I think one phrase in particular has struck me. Um, In my translation, it says, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Mm. I just think about that. You've got labor, I think, in there. Okay. Um, sleepless nights and hunger probably be about mm-hmm. the same. Um, you know, I think about that, and and just the, the labor he was willing to do. It was f- when I meditated on that phrase that I first began to see that kind of three legged stool of Paul's practical life, where during the day he was reasoning in the marketplace with the pagans, in the evenings he was teaching the church sound doctrine, and late at night he was making tents to support himself and his coworkers. Mm. So that's where you get sleepless nights. If there was a tent order due the next day, he had to work through the night. Yeah. Wow. Uh, He could have worked all day, but he had other work to do. So he's just a hard worker. Also, he talks about beatings, imprisonments, and riots. I mean, who has ever triggered a riot? Yeah. You know, but Paul did it again and again. And so his sufferings validate his status as a true messenger of the gospel. He's not in it for anything worldly. Mm. He's not getting anything worldly out of it, but by his suffering and the way he carries himself in the suffering, he is continually commending Christ and the gospel.
0: How does this list convict and motivate us to serve Christ? Because Mm -hmm. we've seen how it validates the message uh, Mm -hmm. that Paul is proclaiming. But really, as he elaborates in verse 4 and Mm -hmm. verse 5, this is convicting to me. How Mm -hmm. should it convict us and then motivate us to action as we serve Christ?
1: Well, all of us have that fleshly self-focus, fanatical commitment to self, fundamental among that is a commitment to self-preservation, to Mm. survival. Mm. I mean, every animal is committed to his own survival. And so we are committed, just like any other living creature, to survive, to get through this thing and alive on the other side of this. Jesus calls on us to take up our cross by which we die, be willing to die and, and then give lesser, um, of ourselves, not less than death, but to give all of our energy, to give our time, our freedom, mm-hmm. whatever. We understand that, that call, but very few of us live it out. It's, it's very difficult to do. And so there's always this upward call of Christ to a higher level of consecration. And as I read these words, I, like every generation of Christian that has, have, has lived 20 centuries have to be convicted and say, my life isn't even close to this. Mm. So he speaks about the sufferings, but he also speaks about the positive aspects. In purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and sincere love, truthful speech and in the power of God, these are all positive things. This positively characterized his spirit-filled life of ministry, so Mm. I find myself convicted by that. I want to live like this, but I know it's difficult.
0: Now what weapons does Paul begin to speak of in verse seven. And what does this teach us of the struggle involved in advancing the kingdom of
1: God? Weapons of righteousness, he said, truthful speech and the power of God. Mm. So truthful speech, true speech, true words, that's the gospel or right doctrine. You're going to speak. So a lot of what pastors do, missionaries, Christians do to change the world is to speak the word of God. Along with that, true speech, the speech of truth, comes the power of God. God combines his power with the words that are spoken. And it's a secret, mysterious, spiritual power. It's the power of conviction. People have a sense that they're encountering the living God through this messenger. They can sense the presence of God. Uh, J.I. Packer said when he first heard Martin Lloyd-Jones speak, preach with uh, just an expository sermon, he'd never heard preaching like that. He Mm -hmm. said, it came on me with the force of electric shock. So there's this feeling of the presence of the Holy Spirit, in power to convict, and so that's the the, the weapon of weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. Mm-hmm. What a fearsome thing! The Apostle Paul must have looked like to demons that were trying to stop him as he goes out clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, and you can't stop this guy. Yeah. And people are getting converted, and you have to report back to your dark king we have failed Mm. many more people have been converted Mm. and he shrieks with rage because we couldn't stop paul that's weapons in his right hand in his left
0: that's so helpful and it also speaks of just the nature of the warfare right that this isn't just against flesh and blood but Mm -hmm. it's against these rulers and powers and principalities that that the gospel message is what we push back against the darkness with as that light shines uh, in the world through us so good Paul is treated with honor and praise by some, mm-hmm. but he's dishonored and slandered by others. Yeah. How are both sides of this equation inevitable for those mm-hmm. who faithfully minister the Word of God?
1: Sure. Um, you know, we've talked before about the the joy of transitioning to plurality of elders. Many churches in the Southern Baptist Convention and and other denominations are single elder models. So there's a tremendous focus on the senior pastor. Mm. And one of the problems with the single elder model, the senior pastor as the kind of head of the church, the man of God kind of thing, is he gets too much credit and too much blame. Mm. There's too much focus on him in every respect. Whereas with plurality of elders, there's a team of godly men. So if you look at this phrase, uh, through glory and dishonor bad report and good report you know it's too much praise and then and then too much condemnation all focused on this one person so paul was a slandered man uh, he refers to this in romans chapter 3 why not say as we we're being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Hmm. Um, so Paul was slandered. Uh, we also uh, He was slandered concerning, I think it was Titus, a Gentile. Um, the assumption was that he had brought an uncircumcised man into the temple area, which he never did, it's a slander. Hmm. But that's what started the riot in Jerusalem. Hmm. It wasn't even true. Uh, and so he had to deal with this slander, and he also had to deal with people thinking too highly of him. Uh, we could imagine people wanting to like kiss the hem of his garment, or act like he was some you know, like he was God himself. You remember in in um, Acts 14, uh, they literally wanted to worship him and and Barnabas. They said Barnabas was Zeus, and Paul was as the speaker was Hermes. And they're, they're coming out to offer sacrifices to them. That's, that's No, that's not it. So this extreme, so through glory and dishonor. Mm. Sometimes it's healthy. Sometimes it's just the glory of God is on them, and people are thankful for them and all that. And and that was nice. But as Paul says that we don't live for it, et cetera. So he's describing the nature of ministry, and pastors have to go through this as well.
0: And he really does that in verses 8 through 10. He mm-hmm. contrasts the way he and his companions are treated to mm-hmm. the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. We are treated as, mm-hmm. and yet are, that phrase, again and again. What does this teach us about the opposition and slander that Paul faced in these verses?
1: Well, in these verses, 8 through 10, it's pretty clear Paul is saying we are fundamentally consistently misunderstood. Hmm. People don't see us properly. Now, we understand that the people he specifically has in mind here are the Corinthians, and they have been listening to slander from these super apostles. Hmm. And so throughout this whole epistle, he's got to defend his honor And he's saying, you folks under the bad influences that you're listening to are seeing us improperly. And perhaps they were triumphalistic. They were saying, almost like prosperity gospel people, and they say, look at this guy. He's dressed in rags. He's in, he's in chains. How could this be the messenger of God? And Paul's saying, if you think that, you really don't understand what's going on here. So we are regarded a certain way, but the reality is very different. We are regarded as imposters, but we actually are genuine. Hmm. We are regarded as, as uh, unknown uh, like you can't really know us, but people actually do. We open our hearts wide. He's going to say that in a minute, the mm-hmm. Corinthians. Mm-hmm. You know us. You know who we are. We lived among you. Uh, we're regarded as as um, you know, uh, downcast and beaten and and oppressed and killed. But the fact of the matter is. All of these things are just external. They have to do with what's happening to our bodies. The reality is very different. We are being prepared for radiant glory mm-hmm. that we'll be in for all eternity. So if you just look at the outward appearance, you are not going to understand us properly. And then he, he says, I like this, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This may be one of the most important phrases in the Christian life, uh, having to do with, with sorrow in the Christian life. Mm-hmm. There are occasions of sorrow. Uh, It is reasonable for us to grieve at a Christian funeral. Paul says we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope, but we do grieve. But I I think it's good for us to look at the phrase here and say, add a few extra words to get at Paul's real meaning. sometimes sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Hmm. Wes, what does that say to you that uh, Christian life is sometimes sorrowful, but always rejoicing?
0: I think it's, it's the reality, right? That we live in a fallen world that's affected by Mm -hmm. the curse. And so it, it's just an honest mm-hmm. assessment of life in this world, that we will face suffering, that we yeah. will hurt, and that there's actually a, a reality to that and a rightness to that when we yeah. face death, when we look it square in the face and say this is just not how it ought to be, but that all the time mm-hmm. there's this glorious kind of buoyancy yeah. in the hope that we have in Christ that Paul speaks of elsewhere in his other writings to the Corinthians.
1: Yeah, I agree I agree absolutely with what you said. And I, I would add this concept, temporarily mm. sorrowful, mm. eternally Joyful. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. You ever uh, play baseball where you have the bat thing at the beginning to decide who who hits first and you go higher and higher on the bat and whoever's <laughs> got the final hand at the top of the bat. Mm-hmm. Or you could play a card game where you get the trump card. Mm. Joy gets the trump card in the Christian life. It's yeah. like, yeah, sorrowful, but down goes the card of joy. Yes. Yeah. And, that, and that's because Christ is risen. We're going to heaven when we die. All of these sorrows are temporary and are working in us a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So sorrowful sometimes, yes, temporarily sorrow, sorrowful, but always rejoicing.
0: Amen. Now, you mentioned this a moment ago uh, briefly or referred to this, but what appeal does Paul make to the Corinthians in verses 11 through 13? And what does this show us about the vulnerability of a true gospel ministry?
1: Well, two great commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. So horizontally, uh, and Jesus also said, they will know that you are my followers or my, or Christians, or even use the word Christian, but my, my followers, my disciples, if you love one another. Mm-hmm. So the love we have for one another, uh, the working of the second great commandment in us should be open and free and powerful. We should genuinely love each other. We should love the brothers. God loves us. God loves that other person, that brother or sister. God loved them. Send his son to die for them. We should love them too. So 1 John is very clear. If you love the father, you love the children. And so what he's saying to the Corinthians is, I'm not feeling the love right now. You guys are looking at me with the stink eye. You're you're negative toward me. And I don't get it. I'm the one that... that planted the church i've been i've i've loved you i've cherished you he speaks of them uh, speaks of them almost like he's their father and they are his children and what he's saying there's almost some pain in here he said look i've been open with you i've loved you i've opened my heart you've seen my motives i've lived among you for a long time but now you are withholding your affection from me you're restrained you're questioning me you're you're it's 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 edgy now between us and i i wish it wouldn't be that way i'm asking you I'm begging you, open wide your heart and love me too. Mm-hmm. We're gonna spend eternity together in heaven. The more we can live that life of love now, the better. So I'm I'm appealing to you. I have spoken openly to you. My, my heart's open to you. You, you. There's no secrets with me. You know who I am, but I'm finding you re- restricted in, in your affections. I'm begging you, open wide your heart to me also. Mm.
0: Now in the final verses of this chapter, we turn to really the nature and the call of God's people that he's Mm -hmm. called out to himself. But we also learn some things about the dangers of worldliness. Mm -hmm. What do verses 14 through 18, this final section, teach Mm -hmm. us about the dangers of worldliness.
1: Well, the initial prohibition in verse 14 is well known. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. The yoking together means to be, I think, in some kind of a covenant or serious relationship with an unbeliever. Hmm. First and foremost, the way I've heard this applied the most is don't marry a Mm non-Christian. So that is a covenant relationship. You should absolutely not marry a non-Christian. Others have applied it in different ways saying, don't go uh, into business partnership with a non-Christian. You're gonna be pulling into different directions. You're gonna be going after the kingdom of God. They're gonna be going after the kingdom of this world. And you're just gonna be going in different directions. So a yoke of oxen needs to go in the same direction. Mm. So don't yoke yourself together with unbelievers because you don't have fellowship with them. They are under the control of Satan. He uses that language. Uh, What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or, or, I mean, it's really Beelzebub or or Satan. How could there be harmony between? And they are children of the devil. Now, I think this whole section, he's addressing the fact that they're still immersed in a very hostile pagan world there in Corinth. Yeah. Most of the Corinthians are unconverted. Most of them are pagans. They're going to the temple prostitutes. They're eating meat sacrificed to idols and loving it. They're worshiping demons, effectively. Don't, don't ally yourself with them. But instead, come out, he says in the language of Isaiah, come out and be separate. Don't live the life of an unbeliever, come out and be separate. Now this is a very important statement that's been made over the years um, of, of, of separation, the come out and be separate. All Christians have to be called out of the world system and lead conspicuously holy lives. Now, some movements have been more separatistic than others. Some have entirely separated. We think about the Amish, who almost have literally nothing to do with the outside world, they've mm. been separate. But the problem with that is it's hard to do evangelism and missions. So the separation, I think, as Jesus said, I'm not asking you, Father, John 17, that you take them out of this world, but you protect them from the evil one. This is the kind of protection that Jesus was talking about, holiness. I, I will I will uh, live among you, I will walk among you as Jesus did, but I will not share in your worldview, I will not share in your sins, I'm going to live a holy, godly life. That's the call here.
0: Hmm. And what reason does Paul give for this command? In verses 15 through 16, he, mm-hmm. he elaborates on exactly some of the things that you were just uh, talking about. What does it mean that we Christians are the temple of the living God?
1: Yeah, it means it's the mystery of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the triune God has come to live within us by the power of the Spirit. Um, Jesus said in John 14, uh, if anyone keeps my word, I will come and dwell in him and so also with the Father and we'll make our home with him. Jesus used this language. And in Revelation 3.20, if you open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. There's this intimate fellowship. It's the Holy Spirit who mediates that. So by the Spirit, we have heart fellowship with the father the son and the holy spirit to some degree the trinity has come to live inside us Mm. we are the temple of the living god not some some stone and wood structure but we are now if that's the case this is the appeal for uh sexual purity made it in first corinthians 6 as well you know you are the temple of the living god and so you can't join yourself together sexually with a temple prostitute, uh, because then to some degree Christ would be joined with a demon and you can't do that. You become one with that temple prostitute, you become one flesh, he uses the actual, the two shall become one flesh statement in 1 Corinthians 6. Mm. So here he's saying uh, very plainly uh, here, you can't do that, you can't, because we are the temple of the living God, we must be holy because God is in our midst by means of our holy life.
0: This chapter concludes with this lengthy quotation in verses 16 through 18. Mm -hmm. What do these verses teach us about God's desire to have a holy people? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this chapter?
1: Yeah, the call to separation from evil is fundamental to the gospel. So therefore, we reject any separation of Jesus as Savior and Lord. Uh, He is both Savior and Lord, and by being Savior, he's saving you from sin. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the clearest mark of regeneration is a holy life. Mm. It's putting sin to death by the spirit. Romans 8, 13 said, if you by the spirit do put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. If you don't, you'll die, meaning going to hell. So fundamentally, putting sin to death and living a holy life is essential to being a Christian. And so what he's saying here is there, the, the gospel is calling these Corinthian people and all of us to come out from their wickedness not physically come out from them because Jesus said then they would have to leave this world, mm. but to come out from their lifestyle, to come out from their paganism, to come out from their sexual immorality and all of their, their sinful indulgences, to be separate by the way they live. And don't touch these unclean things. Don't, don't touch wickedness. Uh, sexual immorality would be part of that, but other things as well, like filthy uh, lucre, or gain you know, uh, illicit money. Mm. Uh, made in in sinful ways. And if you do that, he said, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. You'll be my children, says the Lord God Almighty. Uh, as he had said earlier in verse 16, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Mm. Anyone who reads the Old Testament, especially the prophets, hears this again and again. This is the central desire God has. I will be your God and you will be my people. Mm. Well, what Paul's saying here is essential to that is lifestyle holiness. So to sum up this chapter, what I'm saying is this is the day of salvation and essential to that salvation is to come out and be separate. Mm. So let's come out and live holy lives in the, the midst of this corrupt generation.
0: Well, thanks so much, Andy. This has been episode seven in our second Corinthians Bible study podcast. And we want to invite you to join us next time for episode eight entitled Paul's joy in the Corinthians repentance, where we'll discuss second Corinthians chapter seven verses one through 16. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.
1: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification.